I am pleased to welcome to Truth and Rhythm a stellar guitarist who, while you may not know him by name, if you're a fan of jazz, jazz, funk, or blues, you have undoubtedly enjoyed his crisp emotive playing numerous times. Those he has shared his stylings with during the 1970s and 1980s include the Crusaders, the Brecker Brothers, Hubert Laws, Billy Cobham, Albert King, Taj Mahal, and Miles Davis. In his subsequent years, he has led several terrific recording and performance projects of his own. His name is Barry Finnerty. Barry, how are you today? I'm pretty good. How are you? Doing good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Finnerty. Yes, Finnerty. Finnerty. There you go. Um, and where are you coming to us from today? Uh, I'm in Oakland, California, where I've been living for the last uh, 20 years or so, although we're getting ready to move pretty shortly. Um, we uh, put the house up for sale recently, and I'm, I, I bought a house in Italy, and I'm hoping to spend at least half the year there from now on. We're going to keep a place in Sacramento, but um, but yeah, I, I have no more work in, in, in America, or very, very little in the Bay Area, so it's just, it just doesn't make sense for me to stay here anymore. Wow, well, that'll be a big change. Yeah. I have a lot more contacts in Europe right now than in, in, uh, in the States, really, for playing. So it should work out. Mm. Well, that reflects well on them and not so great, probably domestic. But uh, <laughs> we'll get to that uh, uh, later on, I guess, a little more. But um, I want to start out, Barry, talking about, you know, how you first came to music and uh, why the guitar? Uh, well, my, my mom was a classical pianist, pretty good one, and she started me off on piano when I was five. And uh, I took piano up until, you know, pretty much through grade school and then into, into high school, but I didn't really like to practice that much. I didn't really have the discipline to be, be, be a really, really good piano, classical pianist especially. And um, I got a guitar for my 13th birthday, uh, and uh, it was it was a... I wanted, I wanted to be like the Beatles, so my mom got, but my mom wanted to be like Segovia, so she got me this like cheap classical guitar. And I took some lessons on that, and then I got my first electric guitar for my 14th birthday, and I started playing my first gigs. I just kind of picked it up, and it came fairly easily to me. Um, I was in Hong Kong at the time, and, and I joined a band when I was 14, and we, we opened the show for Herman's Hermits, and uh, played dances at the YMCA and stuff like that. <laughs> Henry VIII, I am. Right. Yep. Yeah. All right. So you're a teenager. You're playing guitar. You're having a, a blast. It sounds like opening for Herman's Hermits. Um, how did things progress from there? You know, uh, did you? Oh, we came back to San Francisco when I was four, fourteen from Hong Kong. My mom had a like, Fulbright grant to teach English over there for a year. And uh, when I came back, San Francisco and the rock and roll scene were in full swing. It was a great place to be a kid at that time in the in the late sixties. And uh, so I played in a few bands, and I, and I started getting interested in jazz. Took a few jazz lessons, and uh, and uh, you know we had we had a, a pretty good band called Beefy Red that a lot of pretty well known guys came through. Mark Isham was in that band. Terry Bozio was in that band, um, uh, and we played the Fillmore. We opened for some bands there, and uh, we got pretty popular. But then I I decided that I wanted to move to New York and play try to play big time professional jazz because that's what I really wanted to do at that time. So I moved there in 73 and I got the gig with Chico Hamilton like like two weeks after I got there, which was a rare stroke of luck. And so I was off and running. Well, so early on, who, who would you say were some of your primary stylistic influences? Uh, well, I, I, I grew up uh, in rock and roll. So I mean, uh, my first big guitar hero, I have to say, was Jeff Beck. 
um, when he was with the Yardbirds. I was a huge fan of his, and uh, and uh, and then I got into Jimi Hendrix and, uh, and Eric Clapton. Sort of those were the big three, and then later in jazz, I got influenced by George Benson. Or actually, Howard Howard Roberts was the first jazz guitar player I really got into. Somebody gave me a record by him, and I, I dug his funky melodic kind of jazz style. And then George Benson, Kenny Burrell, Wes Montgomery, you know. But I always was sort of a mixture of a, of a, you know of the rock players and the jazz players, you know. And a lot a lot of jazz players that you know don't ever bend a note, and I was I, I started off bending note and playing blues. BB King, of course, you know, you know. So uh, yeah, but but you know Jeff Beck's still a big big influence on me. I, I would think you know. Oh, it's just incredible how well he's kept uh, his. Um, I don't think he's lost a step. I mean, I, I saw him not too long ago, and through the years seeing him, he's still just uh, really on top of. Yeah, he always will show you a sound that you haven't heard on a guitar. You know, he's he's really into getting different sounds out of the thing. You know, and uh, I met him once, and he's a really nice guy, actually, too. Really, really unassuming and, and humble. You know, kind of guy, very friendly. Did you ever get to see him perform uh, in the late '60s, early '70s, or did you get a chance to see Hendrix? Yeah, I did. I saw them both. I saw I saw Hendrix's very first gig at the Fillmore in San Francisco. So I said it was a great place to be a kid because every top band would play. In San Francisco at the Fillmore, and I saw Hendrix. His very first gig, he was third bill. It was the Jeff Jefferson Airplane, Gabor Zabo Quartet or Quintet, and Jimi Hendrix was third bill. This was before he played Monterey at a pop festival, and then after after he did Monterey, he he came back just maybe three months later and headlined. I saw him Hendrix about four or five times, and I saw uh, um, uh, who was the other one we were talking? About? Oh, Jeff Beck. Yeah, I saw the Yardbirds in 1967. They played. Uh, they played. Was a show with a, one of the first shows I went to at the Fillmore. It was a. They had a. They had Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page on dueling lead guitars, and uh, you know the Yardbirds were one of my favorite bands back then. They were great. You know, it was really a gas to see them. I think that was the only time. Or no, I saw the Yardbirds later, but out, but it was after Jeff Beck had left. So that was in '67. There was it was a bill with Country Joe and the Fish and the Yardbirds. Yeah, and it was a great scene back then. You could go to one of those shows for four dollars. You know. And uh, you'd walk in. It was no, there was no seats, just a few seats around the edges, and uh, there were like jars of psychedelic paint that you could paint yourself up with if you wanted to, and dance under the black lights and stuff. It was, it was a great scene back then. Wow. It was a great place to be a kid, you know, San Francisco in the late '60s. You know, I was like, you know, 15, 16, soaking it up. <laughs> did did you uh, did Hendrix blow your mind that first time? Did you? Oh, think he was incredible. He was incredible. You know. He was the greatest showman with the guitar probably I've ever seen, you know, the, the, what, what he'd do with it. He was so skinny and he would just like, you know, do things with the guitar. You know, he was a great player too. Although I have to say that aside from his first three albums, his stuff hasn't aged as well as Jeff Beck's house or Clapton's for that matter, the old stuff, you know. Um, but his early stuff was great. But he, I think I think what happened was he, he really got... Right, you know, he got—he really blew his mind on LSD and other drugs. He just got really crazy. I, I got, there's an amazing book called Rock Roadie. I don't know if you've heard of it by this guy named uh, Tappy White. He was a roadie for the animals, and he—he—he um, he, he was a guitar player, but he didn't quite play as good as Hilton Valentine. So they made him—they made him the road manager of the animals. And he, uh, um, well, the, to make to make a long story short. Uh, uh, you know, he toured with the Animals for a while, but then when Chaz Chandler, the bass player of the Animals, discovered Jimi Hendrix and left the band to manage him and make him a star, um, uh, Tappy White went with him. 
And so he followed him. He was he was following Hendrix's career through all that stuff. And uh, the upshot of the book, which which he waited, he waited till uh, um, till Mike Jeffrey, who was Chaz Chandler's partner and a real uh, sort of English mafia dude, man, rock manager. He waited until Mike Jeffrey had died to put this book out because the the the, uh, the upshot of it was that Hendrix didn't die accidentally. They they took him out. They they had him at a party and they poured three bottles. Of, right, they had they knew he'd taken a bunch of downers and they poured three bottles of wine down his throat because he was getting ready to leave the band. I mean, to leave Jeff Mike Jeffrey's management rather and uh, go out on his own. And they couldn't have that. He was worth more than two dead to alive. So they offed him. So wow. it's an amazing book. And the animals were a huge band back then. You know, they were one of my favorites. You forget how big the animals were in the sixties. They were great. Yeah, Eric Bird and. Uh... But yeah, he's still doing it too. Eric Burden? Eric Burden stole. Yeah, uh, he's, still he's still out there too. He's still doing it, yeah. <laughs> this wild scene that you came up in, in, in the Bay Area in the, in the 60s, how did that inform the um, development of your musical mentality and, and approach to music? Well, I think I was just lucky to have come up, uh, I mean, learning the... the the rock classic stuff and the blues classic stuff, you know, like the cream and Hendrix and all that stuff. Because, because when I got to New York, I mean, a lot of guys were playing jazz guitar, but I mean, I could play, um, you know, a lot. Of, I mean, I was trying to play pretty much straight ahead jazz. I had a Johnny Smith and I wasn't bending too much, but then in the mid around 76 or 77, I started using uh, distortion again and uh, really rocking out. I and mean, that came more naturally to me because I had come up doing it. So I could do it way more authentically than, almost anybody else in, the, in the, the, the scene at that time, you know, playing that, that 60 psychedelic style of guitar, you know. So, uh, you know, that's that's kind of how I got the gig with the Brecker Brothers was I was playing with Ray Barretto, uh, the, the big Latin band leader, and I was playing with Distortion, and Randy Brecker came in and saw me play, and that's when I got the gig with Heavy Metal Bebop Band, which was great, you know. And I'm still doing that. I love that stuff. I'm playing with Randy uh, in, in a few weeks in New, in New Jersey. We still do the reunion band sometimes, you know. Although I wish there was more gigs. There's only like three or four gigs a year. What What was it like being in the studio on those sessions? Uh, well, the, the the Brecker Brothers was live. It was a live record. Um, and we ended up uh, working like weeks in the studio with Neil Jason to produce that East East River Lottie Da song. That was like he's, they spent as much producing that one tune as they spent. Uh, uh, on the whole live record, more than twice as much, probably, you know. But it was an incredible band live. I mean, Terry Bozio was so dynamic back then. He was just, he was just a, incredible. You know, he'd, he'd been working with Frank Zappa, and uh, and all of that. It was a great, it was a great time. You know, the, the only trouble was was we didn't get to tour that much because the record company really wouldn't give us any support. We did a we did a one month tour. Uh, at the end of which uh, the Heavy Metal Bebop was recorded. That was the middle, uh, beginning of 77, April 77. How many years ago was that? Jesus, 42 years ago. And, uh, and, then, um, and, then, uh, and then we toured one more time in Europe in 1980, I think it was. But they really didn't give us any tour support. Most of our gigs were just in and around New York or maybe Philly or Boston. We couldn't really go on the road, you know. So that's the way that was. You're in, um, you know, being in the Bay Area when you were, being in New York when you were, I mean, both just incredible eras of music history. Um, 
you know, you were really fortunate, I guess, um, to, to be able to partake in that. I mean, um, tell us a little bit about the New York scene at that time when you were there and, you know, what was it like? Well, the first, when I got there, I got there in, in, uh, in April of 73 and, uh, it was way more affordable than it is now. I mean, that's just a, that's an understatement of the century because you could. I, my first apartment cost me one hundred and forty dollars a month. Yeah, and uh, you know, if I had known what I was doing, I you know, I could have bought a house. I could have bought a house for thirty thousand or something. I could have, you know, you know, everybody's got a New York real estate story, but uh, you know, it was a the scene was alive then. A lot of the real you know legends and masters were still around and playing all, around Elvin Jones with Jimmy Garrison uh Cedar Walton quartet with Big Bill H Billy Higgins and George Coleman uh uh um you know Bill Evans trio I could go down and see at the Village Vanguard just just all the giants of jazz uh were still were, were still around and uh and there was stuff happening just about every night and, and you didn't really have to pay they didn't now I was back in New York about a year ago and uh just to go out and see it, just go out and see it, see it and act jazz at a club is going to cost you sixty or seventy-five dollars. You know, by the time you could do the cover and the two drink minimum, back then you could just go. And we had, and there was a couple guys that had lofts and they had jam sessions in their lofts, and all kinds of guys would come down and play just to practice and stuff. It was a pretty live scene back then, you know, and it was so cheap, it was affordable. You know, a twenty-one-year-old kid could just get around and and uh, you know pay for your own apartment and you know. And, uh, you know, and rub elbows with some of the greats, you know. And how did you ingratiate yourself so well to be able to get in on the sessions that you did? Well, actually, I didn't get in on that many sessions, honestly. There were guys that, had, that did tons and tons of sessions. I, I really wasn't a specialist in session work when I got there. I was kind of green. I wasn't that great of a rhythm guitar player, for example. I mean, I was... I was I, I really wasn't very good at all. I didn't really develop that chop until I was with the Crusaders, who just who used to force me to sit down and play rhythm by myself. You know, I I I was more of a you know melodic player, but you know you have to be able, you have to be able to to keep time by yourself. You know, to just be. And I wasn't, I really wasn't getting that good at that at that time. So as a result, um, you know, a lot of guys thought I was just strictly a jazz player. So strictly jazz players don't get called for, for sessions and jingles and stuff like that, which were happening like crazy back then. I mean, guys that were really working them, like David Spinoza, Jeff Miranov, those kind of session players, they were working the three or four, five sessions a day sometimes. But I didn't get that many. I was, I was, I was lucky to be on a few important records. You know, like the Brecker Brothers and, and Crusaders and stuff like that. But, but I really didn't get that much studio work. <laughs> and my my pension these days shows it. You know, yeah. I, I mean, a lot of those guys are getting pensions of seven, eight thousand dollars a month now, and wow. a tenth of that. You know, so I, I have on your list of credits that I got here uh, that you um, played with Albert King in '74. Is that correct? Albert King? No, I didn't play with Albert King. I I, I did some gigs with BB King with the Crusaders, um, but uh, Albert King I never played with. I, I met Albert King when I was when I was like sixteen, I think, or fifteen. I was taking lessons in San Francisco at this music school, a uh, music store called Sherman and Clay, and Albert King came in and wanted to get his guitar fixed, but they didn't fix him there. So I said, I know the place where where uh, 
I know the place where they fix the guitars. I'll, I'll show you. So I got, I got, he gave me a ride in his station wagon that said Albert King born under a bad sign on each door. And he took me, it was only like five or six blocks away, but he was talking the whole way. And I was like, 15-year-old white boy. I didn't understand a word he said. It was like, oh, it was such a southern dialect. I really didn't understand it. But I, I got him over to the music store. And I remember I played a few uh, licks for him just to, to try to show off. He goes, oh, you sound pretty good there, kid. You know. And then I went up to him in the Fillmore, maybe two years after that, he was playing the Fillmore. And I saw him standing by the bar. And I went up to him and, uh, and I said, hey, remember me? He goes, oh, yeah, you showed me the way to the music store. <laughs> He remembered me. He remembered his little kid after, you know, after, after a couple of years. So that was cool. But yeah, I, I never really, uh, I never played with Albert. He, what about Hubert Laws? Is that correct? Or? Yeah, Hubert is, an old, is my old friend. I, I started working with him, I think, in 1975 uh, in New York. And uh, yeah, we're still, we're still pretty good friends. We get together a couple times a year, you know, have dinner or whatever. How did you connect with him originally? Um, I just heard he was looking for a guitar player. I was uh, back in those days in New York. I was like on the case. Anybody that um, anybody that uh, that I heard was looking for somebody, I would tr I would try to get their number and call and see if they, see if I could get on the gig. And uh, I think that's how it worked with Hubert. I might have had one. I think I had a friend that was playing with him at the time, and he he gave me his name or something. Um, his brother Ronnie was on this show not too long ago. Uh huh. Yeah. How's he doing? I haven't seen Ronnie in years. He's doing good. He wants to get out there more and, and play again. Mm -hmm. uh, he said it's hard. It's not so easy to get gigs as you might think. Yeah, well, that's ain't that the truth, you know? I mean, even for a guy like him who had a million selling record, you know? Yeah. Fringe, so and, Strangers, that Fringe and Strangers was a platinum record. And Hubert, Hubert took the... Hubert tells a story about Ronnie and how he, he, he tried to convince him after he did that record. He said, man, you've got to put your money into some real estate. Now you got to buy that property. And because, uh, you know, Hubert's sitting pretty right now. He's got a, he lives in Imelda Marcus's old mansion on the LA Country Club with a swimming pool and tennis court. And Hubert's been very, very smart and conservative with his money decisions. But Ronnie didn't do it. He was, he thought he'd be, he thought it'd be rolling in for a while. And so, you know, I think his, he's not as financially secure as Hubert is. Maybe I'm sharing too much information here. Was 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 Hubert your uh, path to the Crusaders connection? No, no, he wasn't actually. Uh, uh, I know Hubert was in the original Crusaders, but but uh, no, me and Hubert were sort of just uh, you know we became pals outside of outside of the music thing because we both like to play tennis and ping pong, and we so we we did. There was a there was a 24-hour ping pong place we used to go like at midnight and stuff and play for a couple hours for quite a few years back in the 70s and, and uh, but yeah the, 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 I met the Crusaders through uh, Ray Barreto the uh, Latin uh, uh, per percussionist conga player the Crusaders got brought in to produce a record for him and that's how I met them uh, and we went out to LA and uh, did a couple they recorded one of my tunes and then and then. Um, and then after that, I decided I wanted the gig with the Crusaders because their guitar chair was kind of up in the air. And I, I called them like every week for about a year or six months. And finally, they called me to play on a Joe Samples record, the Rainbow Seeker, his first mm -hmm. record. And uh, and then it took another year or so after that. But then they, then they called me and I did Street Life. So did you succeed? Was it Larry Carlton? or um... No, they had a guy named Billy Rogers in between. He was a great guitar player, but he had a lot of drug problems. He ended up ODing. I think he was wasn't even forty, maybe thirty-seven or something. 
It's a shame. But he was a great player for the Rodgers. What were those guys like? Uh, Joe Sample, of course, an amazing uh, piano player. Uh, Wilton Felder, um, Wayne Henderson. Um, what were those guys like? Well, they were, they, they, you know, it was a great experience playing with the band. They taught me a lot, of, especially about playing rhythm. They used to force me to, to, to play, uh, you know, to play rhythm by myself until they were satisfied with the groove, you know. Some some of it was negative reinforcement, like they they you know what I'm not getting, you know what I'm not getting, I'm not getting that feel like whoom waka 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 whoom waka like I'm trying, you know, you know. It was funny because on on Street Life they pretty much I was I was new to them and they they sort of just let me do what I what I was hearing, you know, and and they got really good results. I thought, you know, I mean the stuff that we, I did on the on the record they were really happy with, but then after they had the hit. They figured they had the formula of how to make hits, and then they would try to they get two or three guitar players. Like sometimes two other guys besides me would be in the studio, and they'd tell us, "Barry, just go, you know." And it's like, "Well, what about if I tried?" No, no, don't don't tell me that. Just do what I'm telling you. you know? they, so they kind of they kind of like uh, uh, restricted what I was able to contribute creatively in the after street life. But, you know, it was, it was a good time. I mean, they were doing great gigs and flying all over the world and stuff. So, you know, I didn't realize it didn't really get much better than that, you know. <laughs> they were flying us first class and for a while, you know, and uh, and staying in great hotels and great big concerts. And, you know, it was nice, you know. But. Well, who who was most like that in the band, though, kind of barking at you? Which Oh, that was Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. Wilson was like kind of – he was a – he was a – he he was a reformed sinner, you know. He had been a, he had been a real sinner back before, but he was a je devout Jehovah's Witness. He spent all his time in the bus with his Watchtower magazine, just just highlighting different passages in yellow, you know. And he was kind of a maniac, but he was but great musicians, you know, great musicians, you know. And he liked me, you know. I liked him too, you know. It was just just trying to do his job, you know. It was like um, he used to he used to he used to drive sound engineers crazy because he he would mix the sound on stage at soundcheck by, by standing on stage and listening to how the sound sound how it sounded bouncing off the back wall <laughs> not the monitors you know he would he would try to you know it was it was it was a strange experience but uh, you know the gigs were good they were super popular back then yeah no, no doubt so you were on street life uh and the um were you on freeze the wind or after that and that was larry Carlton. I, I was on Street Life about four or five, six, four or five records after that. I think uh, Standing Tall along with Joe Cocker in Nashville and uh, the Live with B.B. King in London. You know, that was a hell of a week. Uh, the, uh, there was one live in Japan. There was a, uh, what else? I did, uh, stick, you know, some solo, uh, Sticks Hooper's solo record, Wilton Felder's solo record. Um, I guess about four or five records with them, I guess, you know. The thing with them is, I mean, they were such a great, um, probably the jazz funk band, but only Sticks is around now. And, I know, I know. They all um, and Hubert, although he doesn't really count for that period, but yeah. Yeah, so uh, anything you can enlighten us with about, you know, how they did their thing is, is appreciated because there's no one out there really to tell the story anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, I thought Sticks really had a special feel for his rhythm, but then when they had their band divorce, I'll never forget. It was like a, it was like a, uh, we were playing in San Sebastian, Spain at some festival, 
and I think Sticks just stopped playing in the middle of the gig for something for, for a minute. He stopped in the middle of a tune and vibe wasn't right. And boy, after that, I didn't want to be in that dressing room, man. Shit was flying, you know what I mean? I mean, maybe not objects, but it, it might as well have been. They were so mad. And afterwards, they did a business divorce. And after that, they had a few different drummers. They had in Duke Goo for a while. Uh, you know, it was never the same after that, really, because Sticks, you know, I mean, he had a special feel for his rhythm. I mean, if you listen to Street Life, their biggest hit, if you listen from the beginning to the end, it speeds up like crazy. The, 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 the tempo speeds up on the track, but it felt good. That's the reason it was a hit, because it felt good, you know? And uh, uh, the way they would do it, well, you know, they would uh, just... You know, Joe was a remarkably creative uh, composer at that time. I mean, he, and he always was, really. He wrote a lot of great stuff. And he had a signature sound. And uh, they had their own way of doing it. You know, they wanted that down-home funky stuff. They used to call me a lot of times. You know, I, I used to get upset because they wouldn't call me to play rhythm on some of the stuff. They'd call, like, these other guys, like Arthur Adams and Dean Parks, to do the tracks. And then they just call me in for solos, which means that those guys would do, you know, 10 hours a session to my one, you know. You're making ten times more than me for every for every record, but uh, you know um, they just just you know they were coming from that down that down home Texas uh, old fashioned kind of groove stuff and playing in road hot, hot road shacks and, and shanties and and, and uh, you know they knew what the, what kind of groove they wanted and when they got it they put it down there you know what I mean. When you went out <clears throat> with them on the road, did you ever play anything from the um, Southern Nights album? Yeah, we used to do that. I think so. Yeah, we just do some of those old tunes. I love, I love some of that stuff. Um, Dude, we used to, we used to do, uh, you know, Sweet and Sour. I guess that was from Free as the Wind. I don't, I don't know all the tunes. We used to do, you know, like, uh, keep that same old feeling and all that kind of stuff. You know, I don't know exactly all, all, all the tunes that were on which records, but you know, we used to play a pretty good cross section of their old stuff. We you know, we do the Carol King thing that they did. So far away, and you know, a bunch of different stuff. So, what was it like being on the bill with BB King, too? That was great. I'm a huge BB King fan. Uh, you know, I'll never forget one night he was a. He, I was in the audience, and he was he was singing, and he uh, he broke a string, right? So while he's singing the song, he pulls a he pulls a spare E string out of his suit pocket. Gets a peg tuner out of the other one, puts the string on. While he's singing the song, he's, he puts the string on and tunes it up, you know, and, and ended up, come, came in right on cue for his solo. I never saw better professional show biz than that, you know. And uh, we, got, we, got, we, got, we got pretty friendly that, that, one, that one week. We played for a whole week, you know. At the end of the week, I, I, we were on a first-name basis. Um, he called me Barry, and I called him B. <laughs> So all his friends called him just B. Yeah, his, his friends called him B. Yeah, yeah and I, I got to play with him again, and I think it was 2007. I was at Montreux, and I got to sit in with him. There's a video of that on YouTube. I don't know if you saw it, but it's pretty cool. I tried to play as much like BB King as I could, and uh, it was it's pretty. Have you seen that one? You I have not, it. but I will. See it on YouTube. It's just a short clip. It's just a short clip. We were we were judging a guitar contest. Me and uh, Todd Rundgren and uh, who was Cornell Dupree. We judged this guitar contest, and then when at BB set uh, at, at the in the big room that uh, that night or two nights later, um, they had the guitar the winner of the guitar contest, and they also invited me and Cornell to sit in. And it was like two forty five in the morning, and BB had already been done doing a two hour and forty five minute set, 
And he was like 80 already or 79, right? And if I was him, I would have been going, damn, what time is it? Like, can, I get a, can I get a stage now? Can I go home? But he was like, ladies and gentlemen, you cannot believe what a pleasure it is for me to be up here with these fine young guitar players, you know? And he meant it. He didn't want to go home. He just loved it up there, you know? What a guy. Yeah, what a great guy.